Hello, welcome to episode. Ah. <laughs> oh, that is that. We want the blue part. We want <laughs> the blue part. We shall keep this. This yeah, is what we're going to upload on the IG. Man was saying that I couldn't speak English. <laughs> it's all come full circle. But yeah, hello and welcome to episode six of the General Consensus Podcast. I'm Tino, and as usual, I'm joined by my co-host Simba. And today we are joined by Gaz and Tawanda. How are you guys doing? Oh, I'm I'm decent. Um, I'm all right. Can't complain. Been a tough week of school in that, but you know, it's <laughs> it is how it is. Oh, I'm good. Thank you for asking, Tino. How everyone is doing well. Gene, it's time to say tough week, but yeah, we're here. We're live, we're well. So yeah, it's good to see everyone here. I'm good also, guys. Just ready for the pod. That's good. That's good. Uh, what are you guys' immediate reactions to the last episode we had on, um, you know, dismantling rape culture? Any key takeaways from that before we get started on this week's agenda? Consent is key and having accountability for those around you. Yeah, I think I'll just follow up with, um, and just like enforce further what uh, Gaz has just said, like accountability is probably the most important thing because I think that's the first stage to hashing out all the wrong in the world, accountability. Once you realize that you, what, whatever you're doing is wrong, then yeah, we're ready towards the right path, towards the, you know, correction way. No, I feel that. And I agree with you guys. Just mainly that and I guess just watching the small little behaviorisms that we allow, that we engage in, that eventually build up over time. So this week, we're just going to be talking about a few things, you know, um, mainly, I guess, you know, the European Super League and how that's all, you know, come up and gone down in the space of three days. But yeah, Tiki, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that was a shambles, not going to lie, bro. It's like these guys, you know how in history they formed the League of Nations and all these guys, though they're the big players, and then it just got dismantled because no one wanted someone wanted to be bigger than other people. Yeah, that's what it is, bro. So it was crazy because there was an outcry. I think the, the news was released on Sunday or something like that, and there was this whole outcry. I've never seen um, Twitter like that before or any social media platform blow up like that and just shows that how massive football is and how people are so attached to the game. So, yeah, um, in the next coming days, we saw the implications and the decisions that were made and it just it just fell off just like that. So, yeah, it was a, a crazy time, not going to lie. Not going to lie, football is being threatened and the fans united and we got something done. So, yeah. What about you guys? I, I haven't really spoken to you in depth about what you or what your reaction was to this whole situation, but do you mind letting us know what, what you think about it? I was in shock. It seemed like something out of a movie, something out of just some gangster type vibe. I can't believe that they actually thought they could just take football, 12 people, 12 organizations held held this hostage was quite quite a sight because they would have definitely killed football and that's something that we wouldn't recover from yeah i agree with you for sure what about you Tuan? i know you had really strong opinions about this yeah i mean i'm so reeling um on an emotional aspect obviously because yeah um like Gaz already mentioned that they really attempted to take away football and 
it just went out uh, to remind me that you know there's there can always be too much of something and i think what was too much in this sense was like that capitalist greed like they saw that okay um this is our chance to make a lot of money right and they completely you know like just left left out um the survival of other clubs i mean sure like it's not directly your responsibility to take care of other clubs, right? Because, you know, everyone has to look out for themselves first and foremost. But then that doesn't mean that you, like, you know, have grounds to, quote-unquote, indirectly harm everyone else. So it's just, yeah. Like I said, I was reeling emotionally from it, and I'm just glad that it's all over. Okay. I, I mean, my whole thing with this is that it happened so quick. So I never really had the opportunity to sit down and really think about it and see where I stand. I mean, obviously, no one wants, you know, football at the lower league level to be curtailed and to the extent that, you know, it's non-existent. But, you know, I just I just never really understood why people were so passionate about what was going on. Because I, I, I just, I don't know, I think it just went a bit over my head. So if you guys could, like, explain that. Because I think that sentiment's been lost on me. I never really understood why it is that people were so passionate about it but if you guys could maybe elaborate on that um without getting too like um biased rather because obviously my side is like clear that we didn't want this to happen but it's i think what happened is that like um um i think the idea in itself was you know uh pushed forward by florentino perez you don't know who florentino perez is he's basically some big some big wig at real madrid um, not sure if he's the CEO or like owner of the club, or, but he's oh, pre- no, he's president. Yeah, oh, he's chairman. Okay, yeah, there we go. He's chairman of Real Madrid, and he is part of these like big wig clubs that have had a surprising amount of debt during this COVID period. I mean, COVID has hit everyone hard, and you know, um, it didn't spare footballers, it didn't spare football clubs. So now, first and foremost, what they want, what Perez wanted to do, for example, was, um, you know, get rid of that debt. And like I had mentioned earlier, like when it comes to um, getting, you know, your pockets back in shape, then it is really like important to get rid of that debt. But then I think the way that they went about it, the way that Perez uh went about it was very you know inconsiderate it was um literally um taking out the principles of football if i remember right he actually said like in a in a presser he said that first things first is we want to fix the pockets of the founding the 12 founding teams and then the greater good of football is a secondary concern so I think that that's that second part of the statement uh, probably got to a lot of people because you know um, you hear the statement a lot like football was created by the poor and now it's getting stolen by the rich. So you know it, it felt like the one thing that money couldn't like really get a hold of, like the love of football, felt like that was being taken away, and, and that's why people had a passionate reaction. That's I'm spitballing, but that's I think that's kind of what people were trying to get at i think a way to understand it is just look at looking at looking at it at um from a capitalistic point of view these 
12 organizations just wanted to ensure profits, sustainability, look at a, look like look at a club like Arsenal. They are not in Champions League. They need Champions League for further revenue every single season. That not when it's not guaranteed, then that's a problem. So they just wanted a model of sustainability, no relegation. You get your 500, 400 million pounds from JP Morgan. And that's all it was. And that would have affected the rest of lower, lower league teams. And that would have been a very big problem because honestly, most revenue is driven towards the big six. We watch football for the bigger teams. We don't watch for Burnley or, or at least I don't or Leeds or these other small teams. And I get that. And I think you guys are right on that. You know, there's obviously two sides to the story and we can see that, you know, there's a reason why teams like Arsenal, basically these Super League teams, they're now being dubbed. There's a reason why they, they wanted to join. And, but there's, there's also, you know, side effects or potential consequences to that, as Tawanda also clearly elaborated on. So then my question to you guys becomes, there's obviously a problem with, with um, inequality, especially with competitiveness um, in Europe's top leagues. I mean, if you just look at it, right, Juventus have won nine Scudettos on the trot. Bayern will shortly match that, and PSG will probably make it eight and nine seasons, right? And the exception was 2016-17, where Monaco beat them, and PSG subsequently signed their best player for an exorbitant fee. And Bayern habitually do the exact same thing whenever their reign is threatened. So surely the best thing in a, comp- in a competitive sense for European football would be to create a place where these top sides can go, if not temporarily, then permanently. Because people always bring the argument that we need to keep all these teams together because, you know, eventually teams like Everton, West Ham are going to catch up. But some teams have been chasing for 30 years, still haven't really caught up. What do you guys think? What is the solution to the issue of competition? Because, I mean, like, title races are now concluded by December these days. The solution is always money. It's distribution of wealth. If you look at um, TV deals, TV rights deals, most of the time it's it's skewed towards the big bigger teams. So if a deal with a broadcaster would be more in favor of smaller teams i think that could help competitiveness because you can't have like let's say psg signing mbappe for 150 170 million or something like that meanwhile leon can't even sign a 70 million dollar player we need some sort of some sort of equality there that would help yeah i I read what you said um there's something that needs to balance the playing field and i feel like that has been stumped a bit because of like corruption, of course. Um, like an interesting set that I, I don't know how far true this is, but you know, like you have UEFA, right? Um, if you win the Champions League, right? The best competition in Europe, you don't, you earn, your earnings are less than someone, than a team rather, that has won in the second division of the English Premier League. So like, Already, like you can see that, you know, best competition in Europe and second division are earning just about the same, if not more money. So to a certain extent, you can understand the frustration of these big clubs saying like, listen, um, you're underselling us. 
um, because we are not at the same level. And it's kind of, but then at the same time, as soon as you hear someone say that, like even on a personal level, if you hear someone say, okay, you're underselling me, I'm, I'm much better than these guys. That's exactly how it's going to look like. They're going to say, I'm much better than these guys. It's going to be very, you know, it's going to be very inciting. People are going to be um, kind of mad. Like, that's exactly what's going on right now. And Orlando. yeah. Do you think, um, since you're in Germany, do you think that 50 plus one rule could help in any way? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, what's a football club without its fans? I think um, it's just that now, like with the pandemic and everything, you know, like fans haven't been able to like really show how important they are to the revenue process. But then, yeah, like even before football was, before like football was commercialized, football was ready for the fans. And as it got commercialized, the fans made it better um, on a business perspective. I think the 50 plus one rule would be amazing because, uh, I mean, the 50 plus one rule is amazing. It's working for German clubs. Um, I feel like there are certain teams like Bayern that are kind of like, you know, milking it and finding ways to see like, you know, maybe 50 plus one, but it might be 120% of the shares, you never know. But yeah, besides that, um, if if it's put out the way it's meant to be put out, the way it's, uh, the way the principles are laid out, then I think it's a perfect rule because you get to see, like, I would say your main contributors, I would say your fans are your main contributors to see where their heads are at and yeah basically respect their takes okay would you like to briefly explain the 50 plus one rule for listeners who might not be that well acquainted with football especially german football ah, okay so the 50 plus one rule is basically um you would have 50 percent. let's just say on a, in a normal instance in a normal instance you have 50 percent of the club quote-unquote controlled by the fans, like 50, 50% of the club owned by the fans. And then uh, the other 50% is owned by the actual owners, right? But then the, what the 50 plus one rule does is that that 1% of shares, like that 50 plus one, that 1% uh, of shares goes to the fans, therefore giving the majority rule in every decision that the club makes, you know, just not exactly as a thank you for supporting us, but, you know, as, as to, sh to show them that, you know, they like an important part of the club, then 49% obviously goes to the owners and yeah, whatever the fans say, basically, it's not, it's a customer is king type of process. That's exactly what the 50 plus one rule is like. I mean, it's interesting because guys are just talking about capitalism. And I think the main reason why you don't really get major investors going to the Bundesliga is because of the 50 plus one rule. Because I remember, the, I don't know if they went through it, but a few years ago when we were still in high school, the Zim government wanted to implement something similar where it was like, you know, for external investors, your company needs to be owned majority by someone who's indigenous to Zimbabwe. And that sort of thing, you just see it all over the world. Like it, it's not good for, you know, attracting investment and that sort of thing because they can't control the investment. So essentially, it's like you're just putting money into something and you don't know, you know, how it's going to end up. But I don't know. I don't think that I don't think that's the that's the way forward for English football in particular. I mean, to be fair, it's working to a certain. But is it really working in Germany? Because Germany is one of the least competitive leagues, especially at the top. 
So can we really say that it's, you know, for the people? Do we really think that it's a feasible solution in the long term? Or do you think that Bayern's dominance has a lot more to do with something else? Um, if you ask, if you ask certain people, like within within these ends here in Germany, they'll they'll tell you that like yeah, Bayern has got they've somehow bypassed the fifty plus one rule. They've got assistance from Qatar, and yeah, you would just hear a whole lot of stuff. Um, club affinity also being important. But yeah, um, like you have pointed out that there is the drawback that, yeah, as much as the 50 plus one rule gives power to the fans, the German league hasn't been, you know, as powerful as other clubs when they all go on the European stage. So yeah, like that's another concept that sounds wonderful. I mean, as a fan, it sounds wonderful. I would love to be part of a 50 plus one type of club, but then, you know, like let's say, in this situation, like um, a decision is left to the fans, and then the fans have a split opinion, and then that one vote like changes is the one that then is counted as like the fans' vote. It then yeah, it doesn't bring out like a clear image because everyone will obviously have different ideas on how to run a club, and yeah, it just then becomes complicated. So you need like this to happen only like on a common view. What about you, Jackie? What do you think? I think it all stems down to to money. Nowadays, football is really controlled by money. And all the big clubs, all the teams that are at the top right now, they're all teams that are owned by your billionaire owners. You look at Man City with the Sheikh, you look at Chelsea with Abramovich. Or you can even look at teams like PSG, or they're owned by Qatar owners. And you can see those are teams that are consistently challenging at the top. But then you can also look at the other side of the coin with Arsenal, with Man United, these teams, or let me just be more specific with Man United, these teams, Man United are owned by a billion dollar owner as well. But then you see sometimes they don't really invest in those types of players, which means that they're not able to compete at that level. So I think it all stems down to which team has the most money and which team can provide the facilities and buy the players to enable that competitiveness. Because I'm sure even Everton, I'm not sure if they, they've got a rich owner as well and they've now got Carlo Ancelotti and they've put in some quality players. So you can see money can really change a club and can make them competitive. But you can also look at it sometimes, even with that money, it all, sometimes when, even with that money, teams aren't really competitive, they aren't at that level. Arsenal have got a billion dollar owner as well, but they don't consistently challenge. What's that what's done down to? It's because the owner doesn't want to spend. So I think you can look at it both ways. And like what Gaz said, it's just a matter of just investing in the club, you know. Invest in these owners need to invest in the club. If you're gonna be an owner of a club, you have to show that you're willing to put in the money, to show that yeah, I'm ready to challenge. Because at the end of the day, I, I can put in money into a club right now or into a business, but then I won't do anything about it because I'm just putting it there just for fun. But as an owner, you have to put your money and say, listen, okay, I want to see my team rise to the top, no matter what it takes. I mean, as a Chelsea fan, I'm sure even Tawanda guys can agree. We, we may not like how our club is run, sacking and hiring, but then it's bringing us the trophies. Of, of course, in the long term, it doesn't work, but then you have to have that winning mentality as always. So, yeah, um, I don't know, bro. I think, yeah, money is just the, just the key.
for competitiveness. I don't want to lie. I think it's a tricky thing, but I'm glad that you brought up, you know, how being a fan of a top club, you know, you guys support, the three of you support Chelsea, I support United. It's, it's a tough line to toe because, for example, if we look at Chelsea, United and City, right, the fan bases of our three clubs, all three including City, you know, we've been spoiled because we've had billionaire owners, right? But then the problem with having billionaire owners, like I said on your Instagram live the other day, is that you don't have much say in what they do decide to do with their clubs. You know, on the one hand, you've got City. Okay, I think the best case scenario is the City situation with the trillionaire owners, sovereign uh, wealth fund. Um, and they generally care about, you know, results, but not just results, but infrastructure, the process. You know, City tick all the boxes. Then you've got the middle ground where it's like Chelsea and might not necessarily care about the infrastructure and the process, but they care about the results. Then you've got United at the bottom end of the spectrum, which is being a bit harsh, but um, for the sake of comparison of these three clubs, you've got United who since, you know, the Glazers have come in 2005, they, they leveraged Man United in a lot of their personal loans and they bought Man United with a loan. So now they've cost the club 1.5 billion pounds since they've taken over and not really earned us as much. So you never know where it's going to happen. It's always, you know, a throw of the dice. Um, like we're seeing right now with Inter nearly declaring bankruptcy. But my next question would be for Gaz, which is what are your thoughts on how this, I think the biggest winners in all of this are probably Alexandra Seferin and UEFA. He's coming out of this looking like the so-called good guy and UEFA is looking that little bit more untouchable following this. My question is, what are your thoughts on, you know, UEFA's position going forward? How likely they are, you know, to be displaced by a future sort of coup, like what we've seen in the okay. Super League? I don't think, I think this is just assured their position. They now know that they have the fans backing and I don't see any any way the big, the top clubs can can pull away from FIFA, from FIFA and UEFA. Even with this new with this new Champions League format, where instead of 32 teams, they're expanding to 36 teams. And um, they are allowing one spot, one slot is, is for champions from a smaller domestic league. The next um, slot goes to, goes to whoever's got the highest coefficients, UEFA coefficient, who didn't make the Champions League. So basically, they have just basically the Super League has just transferred into the UEFA Super League, basically, in where you're now guaranteed Champions League position. Let's say Real Madrid don't make it into the Champions League, then of course historical performances into account, they will get a place into the Champions League. That's what they wanted, and also with with adding new, and also with the um, with the format change, it's no more. There's no group stages. It's now a league. <laughs> so everyone, everyone who was complaining about a Super League, you've got the Super League. So there's going to be, I think it's 10 games. From six games in the group stage, it's going to be 10 games in the league. It's going to be crazy. You know, I think it's, it's kind of, it's ironic. That's why I didn't understand the people that were really that angry about the Super League which I think has just been 
by or on purpose or you know by design or by mistake it's been a huge distraction for UEFA's rollout of this new this is the Swiss model of the Champions League and it, it's a bit laughable because people haven't taken time to examine the new format for the Champions League and I think they're really going to be shocked when they finally sit down and do the thing is UEFA is just so tactical I don't know if you guys it's like I don't know if you've ever done this to someone where you propose something horrible like let's say with uh, Hillary I, I like Hillary please give me a hundred dollars of course his first reaction is like ah oh, no I need this money then I just ask for fifty dollars and you and you're more likely to take that so you you negotiate high then you bring it down that's what UEFA just did to us so now this league is now palatable people are back in the leagues there's no super league but there is now a super league anyway we're just now more accepting of it because it's not so bad as the first proposal which is a shame because you know that means that we're not going to have that much time to sort of like campaign and protest for the champions league reform that people actually did want and that the super league was i think intended to address but didn't fully you know end up going towards that way that direction which makes me think do you guys think that if the clubs have been open and clear about or open and honest about what their plan was from the beginning that the club, the plan might have at least gotten to you know a review stage whereas i think the whole secrecy of it has maybe shrouded what is otherwise not a, an entirely bad idea if you ask me i think I think the I wouldn't say secrecy bro because we've been knowing that these guys wanted to break out like we've been getting hints I mean look at Real Madrid with the I remember last time I tweeted out like why are they playing at the I don't know what stadium they they're playing at then someone told me they're renovating it so I think all of this stuff has been in the making and we've been getting small hints as to why um all this is happening so it's quite it's quite tricky in that sense that I, the way of like the secrecy and stuff i think the way the the way the news just came out like of course it has it's been happening behind the scenes and whatnot but then the way it just came out of nowhere a day before uefa about to announce their um new swiss model it's like okay so which side do we pick now who do we go for so i don't know it's quite a tricky one try a tricky one bro i'm not i'm not going to lie Yeah, that is a tough one. They didn't. They certainly didn't do themselves any favors. You know, sort of like a. You know, we always preach don't don't shoot the messenger, but they didn't really give the fans any option because it felt like, as Toanda, um, you know, so clearly articulated earlier on, it felt like you know they were taking something away from us, and once you know the fans already took that stance, I don't think anything Florentino Florentino Perez said in any of his useless. press conferences did anything to help his cause. So what are your immediate reactions to the Imola Grand Prix that we've just witnessed? Simba? Oh man, Imola Grand Prix, you know. Now listen, um we already knew that at the beginning of the season it's going to be between two drivers, Max Verstappen and Sir Lewis Hamilton. So listen, that race was really interesting. I mean, just the start when max overtook lewis you knew that this was going to be a banger then lewis goes out 
and then Perez as well. He has, um, he, I think he crashed. I'm not too sure. My memory is a bit bad, but I think he also crashed. And then now you knew that now the race, you know, the race is interesting. Lewis, his front rear is gone. He needs to get a new uh, front front wing. He gets it, and you just see the safety car pulls through in time. He goes on to finish second. So, I mean, it was a very interesting race. That's like the type of race I always enjoy. It's races where you always get the unexpected. I always say this, that whenever Hamilton isn't on pole or isn't leading, I feel like the race is more interesting and I haven't been proven wrong yet. So yeah, it was a very good race. I think it just showed you that, yeah, the season is really going to be interesting. Red Bull are definitely up for the challenge. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving Mercedes and their social media right now, their Instagram, their Twitter, the way they're just calling out Red Bull saying, yeah, we took your wings and tagging them in unnecessary posts. So yeah, it's gonna be, it's been exciting so far, I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, Tawanda, what do you think about the Grand Prix? Since you got Landon Norris, you got a podium, right? I'm pretty sure yeah, you Hey, 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 don't steal my fight. That's exactly what I was about to talk about. <laughs> nah, I'm joking, but yeah, like, Obviously, my my biggest um, like reaction was um, Lando getting third place. I mean, like oh, what Simba pointed out, I think he could have been second place, but yeah, Hamilton is just a crazy good driver. Man went into gravel um, all the way into ninth place. Yeah, he was saved by the red flag. I would say he was saved by the red flag. To be fair, there was debris. Like um, the reason of the red flag is that like there was. Um, not gruesome, but a, a bad crash between George Russell, Williams' driver, and Valtteri Bottas, who's been underwhelming um, in the first two races so far this season. So, yeah, they shared a few words there. It was, yeah, they showed their emotions, and, yeah, it, it happened. But, yeah, um, it was nice. You, you knew that it was going to be an interesting race when you saw the rain. Like, you know, when you see those green tires, those, those intermediates out, you know that, yeah gonna be it's gonna be a bit dangerous but yeah um great race overall um i think it was a beautiful race to watch for the fans probably terrible for the drivers but yeah um you can't have the best of both worlds what about you guys did you watch the grand prix i watched the highlights i watched the highlights uh, the race just basically confirmed what we have already knew coming into the season as simba pointed out that it's a two-horse race between Max and Lewis Hamilton. And with this season, especially with, um, with, the, with the competitiveness between the two, any mistake can be punished as seen, as seen in the first corner. Because I would like to see further in more races what's going to happen when Max is on the outside. Is Lewis going to budge? Are they going to give each other more track room or not? I think more in the season, you're going to see another collision, a bigger collision where someone's actually taken out. And the controversy from that is going to be very interesting. Like who blinks first? Because, you know, Lewis is not going to blink first and, you know, Max would never. And I think that rivalry is going to just make the whole season more interesting. Speaking of rivalries, we did also get to witness, you know, Valtteri Bottas and George Russell going at it, which was probably... The funniest thing for me, maybe not so funny for Toto Wolf, but yeah, just like touching on what Gaz said, I think I agree like a lot with what most of Gaz said. I think we all know how great Lewis Hamilton is. 
but we we also know his history when it comes to you know these really closely contested title races and he does start to crack a bit under pressure we saw that you know the last time nico rosberg was well when nico rosberg won in 2016 i'm sure dickie's gonna like that as well that i'm bringing that up but nico rosberg yeah, you, you see what exactly fam one time world champion but you know you see what happens when you put lewis under pressure and i think max is the guy that can finally do that and make f1 a bit more competitive and less of a foregone conclusion this season but when Toronto was speaking about you know formula one early on one thing that came to mind is something i wanted to ask you guys it's a bit i hope it's not a bit too on the deep side since we're talking about a sport that you guys all enjoy but one thing i've realized is that not just in formula one but in many other sports there's the whole black lives matter thing right and then you've got people wearing t-shirts or whatever and then some people taking a knee and my question is when is the right time to stop if you're going to engage in that stuff because there's you know it's seeming like there's no synergy you know in the nba they've stopped you know putting on shirts and taking knees and all that stuff and you know even in the premier league have reached points where players like wilfred zaha don't even want to take a knee so if you're going to do it when is the right right time to stop and i guess a question before that is why what do you hope to achieve by taking a knee that might help us reach that answer i mean the first thing that you have to ask yourself is that like why have people stopped um being as um as i wouldn't say passionate but you know as um aggressive about um this whole situation and i think the simple answer is, is that because it's it's now ineffective um you have to admit like you can there's there's a point in time where repetition is very good but then like you know there's too much of something is never a good thing and i feel like if you have like people kneeling for example but there's no effect right there's no people are still not grasping the message then we have to look at other avenues you know to to get this angle to you have to look at other avenues to spread the message because people think that like it's probably like we're just taking the knee and then it's done and but and i think that's um you mentioned wolf zaha he he had that exact take that like um taking the knee is not as effective we've heard so many situations where black football players especially in england have been abused post game because of mistakes they may or may not have made right um players have been taking the knee the whole season the whole season but you still feel people you still see people coming up making fake instagram accounts coming making fake twitter accounts and still like hurling racist racist abuse incessantly like with no hold no holding back right and yeah you can see that okay these guys clearly take the knee and you know they kicked while they're down like this is a vulnerable position that uh people are putting themselves into saying that okay listen guys black lives matter we have to you know buckle down and respect that but people are you know not with the message so i think also it's it's just like out of frustration um i mean you genuinely have people that it's so hard to decipher like what exactly is happening because you know you have two sides of the scale you have people like wolf saha who um like are not taking the knee because you know they feel that it doesn't have an effect anymore then you have 
you know, I won't I won't put a name to this, but like, you know, like you probably have like white supremacist B who's not taking a knee for obvious reasons because he doesn't believe in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? It's, it's that simple. So it's so hard to see like which angle people are pushing at, especially like like when I've what I've said before that when people are being like overly repetitive with it. So yeah, I've got a question for. I had a question for Tawanda. When you mentioned where the taking of the knee isn't really, it isn't effective because the same things are still occurring, doesn't that isn't that down to the social media companies now rather than the Premier League or the football associations? Because not trying to protect them, but what can they do about what happens on on these platforms? Is there really anything that they can do? No, that's a fair point. Um, like, yeah, the, to a certain extent, yeah, you, they, you can only do so much. Like, I totally agree with that, right? But then, um, you know, just like, put it like this, like, um, I'll say like, in, let's put this like in a, in a school type of situation where the players, let's just say the players and the fans are students, the Premier League, will be the teacher and then social media in general, like will be the school, right? And then you have the teacher saying, okay, you mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. And then you have so many routines. Like for example, let's just say something simple, like you have to say good morning to the teacher, like every time you step into class. If you have students that are like persistently not uh, doing as told, it could be either one of two things. It could either be that like the student really just doesn't rate the teacher, or the teacher's not doing the job enough. So now, like you've pointed out, um, sometimes it's like these social media platforms. I mean, the thing about like having the Fifth Amendment, and okay, not not the Fifth Amendment because it's not like applicable like in every single place, but you know, like that free speech thing. It's it's twisted so much that like um, things that are derogatory and you know, like very harmful, end up being dubbed as free speech. And yeah, people basically say what they want. So like, I mean, it is a fair point that like social media apps may not be doing enough, but also like it just addressing like what we can address or what, what can definitely be pointed out is that like, yeah, taking the knee, for example, is not, it's not doing much. Okay. I have a question for Gaz. But before that, you know, just going back to the whole Super League thing, one of the reasons why I want the Super League not to really come to fruition, but at least to go that extra bit further to test UEFA, was so that we as fans and even the other FAs and the clubs and everything, we'd be in a position to negotiate for reform. Because one of the things I'm not happy about is the way that UEFA and FIFA deal with discrimination. For example, we had the whole issue with the Rangers player being, you know, racially abused by the Slavia Prague uh, player, and nothing really happened about that. You know, even though in Slavia Prague's, uh, in the football club's um, hometown, they were running ad campaigns about, the, you know, the, the black player trying to exonerate the team by sort of bringing out negative characteristics about the player you know, in advertisements and all this sort of controversial stuff. And yet the stuff is open on the internet if anyone searches for it and you can see it, but still UEFA has not taken any action. So, you know, it just, I just want 
to bring that back because like that's one of the reasons why I wanted the Super League sort of to pose a threat to UEFA because people have been complaining about discrimination, not just racism, but discrimination of all sorts. And yet nothing really is being done about that. And then my question for Gaz was that, and I'm looking for a way to word this because usually I do get quite long-winded in my questions, but how can you police negative rhetoric, right? Without impeding on people's freedom of speech, if that makes sense. I think you can't. It's you can't have your what's the saying? You can't have your cake and want and still want to eat it or something like that. You once you start policing something, you are once you start policing speech, you are infringing on people's right to free speech. Whether that rhetoric is something that offends you to some degree or whether you agree with it. Once you police something, it's it, it becomes becomes hate speech and becomes something that's that's not allowed anymore. I give this example in that uh, I'm gonna throw Dickie under the bus. No, 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 no. I'm not gonna lie. Tell you guys my connection problem, dude. I don't even know. <laughs> Why do you think I asked this man to type in the questions, bro? Because yo, hey, you know, he was talking about that's the connection uh, problem, bro. So yeah, I don't even know what he was talking about. I'm not gonna lie. Oh, okay, yeah, first... let's answer this. Let's let me answer this question. I think I've got something now, so you can repeat that. Okay, so my question was, how can you police negative rhetoric without impeding on free speech? Firstly, you can't police negative rhetoric without impeding on free speech. When you say something, there is a cost to it. That perception where where free uh where speech is free is it's um it's not real because when you say something, there's either positive or negative effect. So whether people perceive it as negative or positive, that's on them. But you saying that it's free speech without realizing that it has an impact on people is very wrong. So on the point of police, policing negative speech or rhetoric is, is that you can't without impeding on free speech. If these social media companies want to, want to clamp down on racist emojis or ra- racist tweets, they just have to do it. It's either you want it's either you want policing or you want free speech. Pick and choose your poison. Because you can either go to like a an extreme example in a case like China where you can't say anything or you give too much power to these companies, or you allow you allow racist uh sue, you allow racists to say whatever they want on on one on their platforms. And what do you think, Tiki? (laughs) 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 So this one actually dipped. Um, I told you guys, I will switch off my camera. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. But I told you, I told you, I'm going to put you out of the bus. 
Hey, listen, Wait, listen. Yes. No, bro. No, that was that was a bit. <laughs> I gave you guys a warning, so don't say you were surprised or anything. It's cool. It's cool. It's cool. We love you, yeah, we love you, man. Just before we close, uh, Tawan is just going to give us a roundup of his music recommendations from the past week and a half. Um, I'm always told that I've got a very strange taste in music because um, I literally dabble from rap to indie music. But what I want to talk about today is uh, Corday's new EP. Have any, of, have any of you guys heard it? Yes, sir. I was listening to it before we hopped on. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. He's um, dope. Yeah, I would. He is. He is. I think um, that's one person who has been slipped on. I, I mean, have a controversial take on him, so let me let, I'll let you finish. Ah, no, go on, go on, go on. Let's hear it. My thing with Kode is, like, does he have his own identity? Like, like when I think of Kode, I don't know what I'm looking at. I don't know what I'm hearing. I just hear J. Cole, and there is J. Cole, so why am I listening to Kode? You know? I think maybe over time he can develop his own style, but for now I'm not really hearing his own sound. You know what's but you know what's crazy if, if I can just interject. What guys yeah. think is not too far fetched. Because when Corday first came on the block, people were complaining that he sounded like Cole. But now J. Cole hasn't been dropping music. So you're only hearing one version of J. Cole, and that's Corday. So people aren't complaining. So what Gaz is saying actually makes sense in my opinion. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thanks for listening. And until next time, we hope to hear from you soon. Take care.